Hello and welcome to episode four of Friendship and Fluency, Learning English with Andy and Stephanie. On today's podcast, we're going to be looking at famous English quote from history and learning from it. Then we'll be looking at the history of the English language and how that particular part of the history is still affecting the nature of the language today. After that, we're going to talk about how you can improve in your listening skills. And then we'll finish, as we do with every episode, with a funny language learning mistake that we've made. So let's get started. All right. So we're going to begin our show today by hearing a famous English quote from history, digging into its vocab, and then also discussing its meaning. So, what quote are we going to be looking at today? Well, this morning I want to talk about a quote that I really love from American history. It's one that I think about often. As I dug into some of the history, I learned that it was made more popular in kind of our vocabulary by President John F. Kennedy when he used it in a speech.、Hmm. But I also learned that Kennedy was famous for misquoting. Famous people. So he attributed this quote to a philosopher named Edmund Burke, but historians really don't know who said this. A lot of people have said a version of this quote throughout history. And the quote is this The only thing necessary for evil to flourish is for good men to do nothing. So there's a few different variations of that, but I really, really love this quote、uh, because it is it's just so like, crisp. And the picture it paints, at least in my mind, is one of evil as this force that is out to do what it does. It does evil. And it does not need to be encouraged in order to do its work. And the only thing necessary, the only thing needed for evil to be able to do evil is for people who have the power to do something to stop it to simply stand back and do nothing. So, I was thinking this morning of an example. Like, where would I see an example of this in everyday life? Let's say I was in the grocery store and I saw a father with a two or three year old child who was misbehaving. And that father started hitting his child. And I've had things like this happen where that, that quote will kind of come into my mind and I'll think, I don't have to do anything. This is not my responsibility. But If I walk away right now and do nothing, in a sense, evil has won. I am there. And I think that that quote, in some ways, it just carries a reminder to us that we have a responsibility to do what we can stand against what's wrong. Yeah. So if we look at the individual words in this quote, it starts with the only thing necessary. So that would be like the only thing required, the only thing needed. Then it says for evil to flourish. What does flourish mean? Yeah, flourish would be、uh, to really thrive. It would be to grow, right? To spread. Flourishing has this idea of to be alive in a very powerful, rich way.、Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that it's being applied to evil. Probably here it means to spread everywhere. So the only thing that's needed for evil to spread everywhere is for good men. Or his- women. Historically,、mm-hmm. men was used to indicate humans. Right. So for good people to do nothing. 
I'm not going to get involved. That's their problem. That's their business. And it is, it is so interesting. Like you mentioned, the nature of this world is bad things grow unless they're stopped. And good things don't grow without a lot of hard work and planning, vision, and purpose. Think about a garden. This quote is true even of a garden. You don't have to work hard for weeds to grow in your garden. They're going to grow on their own without you. But you do have to work hard in order to grow some good watermelons in your garden or some good strawberries or some good tomatoes or cucumbers. You have to work hard to prepare the garden, plant things, and then you have to pull all of the weeds out. It takes a lot of effort if you just leave it alone, the bad weeds are going to grow and take over. But we're a good gardener, then you will not do nothing. Instead, you will be actively involved in pushing back the weeds, getting rid of them, planting good seeds, taking care of those plants. You see it even in the garden, and then you see it in society as well. Also, just in our interpersonal relationships. It's an important quote to, I think, think about. Um, because uh, all of us want to take the easy path. We think, if I just stay out of it, well, then nothing bad will come to me or to, to my circle of friends and family. But it is important that we, when necessary, that we speak up and we take action and make plans. This is a good quote, a good quote to keep in mind. And that quote, again, was, the only thing necessary for evil to flourish is for good men to do nothing. One of the reasons that I like good quotes from English history is because you can kill two birds with one stone, right? You can learn some good vocabulary, some good English, and then you're also getting wisdom that has been tested by time and history that you can also apply in your life. So speaking of history, I love history (laughs) and I love history probably more than Many other people love history, but, but I will tell you the reason I love history. History always answers the why questions. You look around you and you ask, why is our society this way? Why is my language this way? You want to know the answer to that why. You will find many of those answers in history. And so that's the reason I love it is because it helps to explain things. Otherwise, might not have a good explanation. So... We are going to talk about the history of the English language sometimes on this podcast, not only because I think history is interesting, but really because the history helps you to understand why the English language is the way that it is. Many students will have questions in English class and the teacher, why is the English language so inconsistent in this area? Why is it so complicated in this area? And the teacher will just say, oh, that's the way the language is. How much better would it be if the teacher could say, I know the reason for this. The reason for this is because of this period of history where this other language came in and influenced English, changed the rules. Then you're giving that student an answer to that why question. When you have your questions answered, your mind and your emotions are more free to learn. That's why I like answering the why questions. So we're going to talk about the birth 
of the English language today. The very beginning, I'll summarize it for us so we don't get down into all the details. But at the end of the Roman Empire, in around the, the 400s, the 400s to the 500s, the Western Roman Empire was very weak and it was collapsing. You had all of these different Germanic tribes invading Western Europe and mm -hmm. taking over all of these parts of Western Europe that had been controlled by the Romans and were full of Latin speakers. So they took over France, they took over Italy, Spain, they even went into North Africa. But the only place where they invaded and they kept their language was Britain, Roman Britain. Everywhere else they went, they invaded, they took power. But then as their children grew up, their children grew up and they forgot their Germanic languages and they started speaking Latin. These Latin languages that would become French or Italian or Spanish. Only in Britain did these different Germanic tribes come and settle and hold on to their languages. And there's some mystery as to why Britain is the only place that this happened. But there is some good evidence that it may have been because of a pandemic, like the coronavirus, mm -hmm. COVID-19. Yeah. But around the year 500, there was a plague that was going through Europe, mm -hmm. killing many, many people. And it came to Britain also. And usually it affects people in the cities more than the people in the countryside. So if you had these Roman Britons, these Latin speakers, they had mm -hmm. been speaking Latin for 400 years in London, for example, old Londinium, Roman London. Mm -hmm. And then you had this big sickness come in and met most of them die. There would be more space in that country for these Germanic tribes, more space for their languages. Naturally, when Germanic languages came against Latin, they would lose. Latin had more history. It was a, a literary language. They had books. They had institutions that were teaching Latin. And so it was a stronger language in some ways when it came up against these Germanic languages that were not written down. But in Britain, the Germanic languages actually survived and replaced Latin as the language of society. Latin was still used for education and for religion. But in society, people from these different German tribes, the Angles, which is where the name English came from, the, the Jutes, the Saxons, their Germanic dialects mixed. And what you got was a new language or a new Germanic language called Old English. So you have this very unique situation in Britain and the birth of Old English, really from the 400s to the 800s. And during this time, Old English really became established in a way that is still affecting our language today. So how does this affect English today? How does this affect you as an English? Well, it is important for you to know that when you are learning the English language, you are learning a Germanic language. You are learning a language where the foundation of the language, the way the language is built, it's a Germanic language. And that affects the structure, the bones, you could say, like the skeleton of the language. Even though English has taken on all these other words from Latin and Greek and other languages, underneath all of that, the structure is Germanic. That affects some big things like word order in sentences. When you learn English, you learn subject, verb, object. 
for the proper order of your sentences. I went to the store, right? Subject, verb, object. And that's very rigid in English. We don't change that order very much. We like that order 99% of the time. However, that's different from other languages. Latin languages, there's a lot more freedom to move the subject and the verb and the object around in the sentence. It's not that tight. When you consider Kurdish also, and most of our viewers would be Kurdish speakers, the verb often comes where? End of the sentence. Right. I make this mistake all the time when I'm speaking Kurdish is I have my verb middle of the sentence like an English sentence. I should be moving it to the end, be a more natural Kurdish speaker. So this helps make sense of the order of English. And it even comes down to the order of uh, nouns and adjectives. So in English, our adjectives come before our nouns, not after them like they do in Latin or like they do in Kurdish. Mm -hmm. Why is that the way it is? Because that's what Germanic languages do. Their adjectives come before their nouns. So one example that I've used is we say red car, adjective, noun. But in Spanish, which is a Latin language, they say carro rojo. They flip it. Noun, adjective. And in Kurdish as well. Seare sur. That's right. So I hope you can see how knowing that English is a Germanic language can help you to make sense of why it's different from other languages. And today we just highlighted these two aspects. Subject, verb, object, sentence order, but also noun and adjective order history of a language will help you to understand why it is the way it is. So that's why we do want to talk about it sometimes. I want you to learn more about the history of the English language. It's good to know that English is not just a hodgepodge of strange rules and strange words that don't make any sense. That's right. <laughs> history untangles it all and it gives you the reasons for those exceptions and those strange rules. Sometimes we do have to say, why is it this way? Because English mamas taught English babies, this is how you say it. But usually there's a historical reason that we can find. So next we want to address a question from one of our viewers. One of our viewers asked if we could talk about how they could grow in their listening skill. How would you recommend that a student of the English language grow in their listening skills? Yeah, that's a great question. I would first just remind our listeners that you have these four skills in any language. You have reading, writing, listening, and speaking. Two of those are receptive, reading and listening. Speaking and writing are productive, where you're taking that information and you are consolidating it. You're putting it in together into something else. It's a chance for your brain to take that new information and, and use it. The first kind of principle I would say to someone who wants to improve in any of those four skills, but in listening in particular, would be to narrow your focus or to pick a specific focus that is so helpful and so shaping for what you're doing. It's very different to sit down and say, I'm going to listen to a video. That's very different than saying, I'm going to focus on vocabulary, or I'm going to listen for the sound of the English R, or I'm going to listen for where we'll put words together within a sentence. So I think knowing what you need 
like knowing what the areas are within the English language where you really want to grow or just pick one. You don't have to know all the areas, but just pick one area to focus on first. And then from there, principle number two would be to make sure to have a follow-up activity to that listening activity. So listening on its own is, is very beneficial, but I would say it's not really until you then use it in a productive skill of either speaking or writing that you're giving your brain a chance to put it all together. And what you hear will stick better if you're also using it in speaking or writing. So an example of that could be if you find 10 or 15 new vocabulary words in a film, write those out in a sentence and ask a friend to check it. Or if you find some new sentences or some new slang or new phrases, see if you can try that out with an English-speaking friend. Number one would be narrow your focus. Number two, pick a follow-up activity. And then number three would be knowing what resources you have access to. Everybody is going to have a different level of access to resources. Some of our listeners are taking English classes. Some of them have American friends or British friends. Some of them may have access to videos, audiobooks, music. All of those are resources. And I would just encourage our, our listeners to work with what they have. And also to keep in mind, when you're picking something to listen to, you want to make sure that you can comprehend about 75% of what you're listening to. If you can comprehend every single word easily, it's probably too easy. And it certainly is fun and has its own benefit, but it's not going to be challenging uh, a learner very much. And on the flip side, if you're only catching every like one word in 10, that's too difficult. And that will not lead to good learning. And it will just lead to discouragement. And a final principle that I would like to talk about in an upcoming podcast would be to find ways to measure progress. If you test every week, you're going to get discouraged. You're not going to see visible progress every week. But if you never have a milestone or a way to see how you've made progress, um, that can be really discouraging. So one, one way to do that could be, and I did this myself when I was learning Kurdish, go back to something that you listened to a few months ago, whether that's a video, a book, a news article, and see how much more you can understand now. So those are a few principles for improving listening skills. Yeah, and those are really practical. So having a specific focus when you're listening, like you mm -hmm. said, looking for new vocab, or looking for specific sounds in pronunciation, aiming for resources that are where you can understand maybe around 75% as appropriately mm -hmm. challenging, developing a way to measure your progress. Those are really practical ideas for how you can grow in listening. So I hope that you're able to get some nuggets of wisdom from that advice and apply that in your listening practice. So thank you for that advice about mm -hmm. improving our listening skills. My pleasure. The final thing that we like to finish with is a story about our own language mistakes or the language mistakes of some of our friends or family. And so we're still working through a long list of our own language mistakes. So today I want to share another one from when I was new in Kurdistan. I was only in Sleimani maybe a month 
or less when this happened. This was back in November or December 2007, and I was 19 years old, taking one year away from university to get some work experience in Kurdistan. And one day I decided that I would walk to the bazaar, I would walk to the market. Sleimani has the largest market, the largest bazaar in all of northern Iraq. And it's a wonderful place. We both love the bazaar a mm-hmm. lot. And there's one place that I really like, but you don't like it so much, called Jerperdika, right? It's true. It means under the bridge. And under this bridge, there's all these different animals for sale. I've always liked it because you never know what you're going to find there. Mm-hmm. There are always rabbits. Might be a vulture. There are always chickens. A wolf. Uh, baby uh, chicks as uh-huh. well, geese, maybe turkeys, but you might have an ostrich, you might have an eagle. Very interesting animals show up in this market. So we got a hedgehog there once. We did get a hedgehog one time. Yes, he was a cute little guy. Yes. So back in 2007, this was maybe my first or second time going to Jerpertica. And I was so surprised because I saw a monkey sale there. And I remember being really confused and amazed. How did this monkey make it all the way to this city in northern Iraq, to this bazaar, this marketplace? I didn't have very much Kurdish yet, but I knew somehow, I knew how to say monkey. I learned very, very early on the word Maymun. And I learned how to ask a person, where are you from? And so I thought that that gave me what I needed to be able to ask, where is the monkey from? And so I asked the seller, Maimunika Chalkikre, and he just looked at me, kind of confused. So I tried again. Maybe I'm not pronouncing the words right. Maimunika Chalkikre, where is the monkey from? And again, he just kind of looked at me. I looked around, like, does anyone else understand this foreigner, this Ejnabi? Hmm. So... I kept asking again and again, and finally, he looked at me, and maybe just to get rid of me, he said, Syria? I don't think monkeys are from Syria, but maybe he bought it from Syria. So I said, oh, well. So I went back home. I tried to convince my colleagues in our office to buy the monkey. We could have an office monkey, and we could teach him how to serve chai. It would be great. No one, no one listened to me. They thought it was a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. Still to this day, I think having an office monkey that serves chai would be so unique. No. <laughs> <laughs> no one likes my idea. That's okay. So I asked my friends later that I was studying language with, what did I do wrong? Wasn't I asking, where's the monkey from? And they laughed at me and they said, no, Hulik. Kalkikwe means where are his people? Like, where is his tribe? In Kurdish, literally means where are his people? Or mm-hmm. where are your people? Where mm-hmm. are your people? Is a way to ask where are you from? My people are from Philadelphia. Your people are from New York. But you only ask that of people. You don't ask that of animals. Because animals don't have a tribe. They don't have a people connected to a historic piece of land. So I should, have, I should have said, where did the monkey come from? Mm-hmm. And so from that mistake, I learned Kalkikwe is only for people, not for monkeys, not for animals or other things that are not humans. 
got this picture in my mind of a tribe of monkeys <laughs> running through Syria. <laughs> you never know. So if you are learning another language, it's very important to remember that not everything is a direct translation. In English, where are you from? You can also use it for this lamp. Where is this lamp from? Person or for an object. Mm -hmm. But Kurdish is a different language. It doesn't work the same way. Things don't have a direct one-to-one -one translation. In Kurdish, you ask, where are people from? In a different way than you ask, where other objects or animals are from. Don't assume there's always a direct translation of meaning and usage from one language to another. Well, that has been episode four of Friendship and Fluency. Thank you so much for joining us again, for listening or for watching this on YouTube. Please rate this podcast and let other people know if you are getting benefit from it. Mm -hmm. Share and subscribe. And we're so thankful uh, for you joining us once again. We hope that you'll come back and we'll be able to have fun together learning language. Everybody. Take care.